here this morning. Put my water there for later. I am, can we turn this down significantly? That's powerful. I'm powerful enough without this. So, okay. So, great. I'm really excited to get an opportunity to share with you guys this morning. I always like it when Cameron's gone. So, just kidding. So, today, uh, I think this really ties in well with where we went with worship and with Laura's word this morning. What I want to talk about, what I feel like God has kind of put on my heart, is what do we do when it feels like God has abandoned us? You know, what do we do when we feel like God has turned a deaf ear to our prayers? You know, we've all gone through seasons in our life where we have felt like uh, or truly been in need for God to really move, to really do something amazing and do something significant in our lives. And we cry out to God and we, we seek him in our, in our quiet time. We seek him with our prayers, but it feels like nothing is happening. It feels like God is not paying any attention to us. You know, and we start to question, you know, why won't God answer me? What is going on? Is there something, is there something I'm doing? Maybe do I need to pray harder? Do I need to maybe serve more? Do I need to give more? What is it? You know, why won't God answer my prayers? Especially when we look around and it seems like God is answering prayers all around us. It seems like God is doing amazing stuff in people's lives everywhere we look. But we feel like we are the ones that have been forgotten. We feel like, man, God must not care about me. God must not, you know, be concerned with this situation because he could just snap his fingers and change it. You know, and it's just a difficult uh, place to be. We all, you know, we can all agree that we've all been in that situation. And we think that maybe God doesn't care about us. Maybe God doesn't even exist. You know, some people I know have gone to that extreme. But, you know, we don't want to live without faith. I have gone through seasons where I have walked away from God, and it is, there's no life there either. So, man, it just is difficult. It's like, man, Jesus, I put all my faith in you. I put my trust in you. And yet, I feel like I've been abandoned. You know, uh, what, what Laura was talking about, you know, numer- a number of years ago, five or seven years ago, uh, my father-in-law was diagnosed with, with cancer, and we were praying, and we were believing that he was going to be healed. We were believing that this was going to be an amazing testimony of God's goodness. And we were, we were trusting, and we had prayer meetings, and we had worship meetings, and we believed that this was, that God was going to heal him. You know, and at the same time this is happening, we hear all these testimonies from Bethel Church out in Redding, California, of these people being miraculously healed from cancer, you know. And they talked all the time about how we're proclaiming a cancer-free zone, you know. And all this stuff is happening. And yet you question, like, man, why is God healing people over there in California? And yet the person that I love is nothing is happening. And it's just so difficult to press through that situation and to kind of reconcile the promise of God and our current situation or our current circumstance. And so the question that I'm hoping that we are able to answer today is that what do we do when our circumstances seem to be shouting that God doesn't care? What do we do when the situation we're in seems to be screaming that God has abandoned us? 
You know, we don't want to live without faith, but it feels like we don't have anything to put our faith into. And so we're going to look at a story today about a, a guy in the Bible who was in a situation similar to this. We're going to look at a guy who had served God diligently and passionately for his whole life, and yet we find in the story that he begins to have some doubts about who God is and who Jesus is. And the story starts with Herod the Great, and Herod the Great was the king of the Jews that Rome, after they took over Palestine, um, when the Roman Empire spread through there, they took um, Herod the Great and they put him in charge of all of Judea. And then after he died, they split the kingdom up. They decided that this kingdom was kind of too much for one guy to rule. And so they split it up between two of his sons. And now Herod the Great was the, the Herod that we read about when Jesus is just born and the Magi go to him and he finds out that there is a king of the Jews being born in Bethlehem. And so Herod the Great decides that we're going to kill all the baby boys in, in Bethlehem because I don't, want any, I don't want any competition because I, the Romans, have made me king of the Jews, right? And so this Herod's not a very great guy. And then he has a couple of sons and the Roman Empire decides to break up Palestine, to break up Judea, and though they give the lower portion, they give Judea and Samaria to a guy named Herod Archelaus, who is one of Herod's sons, and they give Galilee in the northern section of Judea to Herod Antipas. And so now this, these are the Herods that we hear about in Jesus's later life, you know, when he is, you know, facing the cross and when he is uh, doing his ministry as an adult. And there's one other Herod that's going to kind of come into play in this story, and his name is Herod Philip. You guys keeping all these Herods straight? So, so Herod, Herod Philip I, not to be confused with Herod Philip II, okay? But we're not going to talk about the second. Just, just one Herod. No, well, four Herods. But Herod Philip I, he is one of Herod's the great sons, and he doesn't get anything to rule. All right? So he is just this guy who's the son of the king, but he ends up marrying his niece Herodias. Okay? Herod has three Herods, and he marries Herodias. Okay? So keep up with me. Um, and so Herod Philip I, he gets nothing to rule. He marries his niece Herodias, and they fall in love, and they have a, a baby, and her name, they have a little daughter, her name is Salome, and she is going to come into our story in a little bit. So isn't this interesting? Um, and so all these Herods are happening, and Herod Antipas, let me get this right, so, oh my goodness. So Herod Antipas decides, I'm going to come down, and I'm going to go see my brother Herod Philip and his wife Herodias. So Herod Antipas comes down, and he visits Herod, and the historian Josephus, who is a Jewish first century historian, tells us that while Herod Antipas was down in Galilee visiting Herod Philip and his wife Herodias, that they fell in love, and that Herod Antipas and Herodias eloped and went back to Galilee, and Herodias abandoned her husband down in Galilee. And so, this, I mean, this is, this is in the Bible. This is interesting. You guys should read your Bibles. It's really, really interesting stories. And so now, Herodias is no longer the 
married to a guy whose dad was the king. Now she is the queen of Galilee, okay? She is married to Herod Antipas, who rules Galilee. And everything is going really well. She's happy. They're living up there. Until this guy by the name of John the Baptist comes onto the scene. And John the Baptist, as we, uh, as we read our Bibles, we find out that he is the cousin of Jesus. And this is significant. He, so he has a really close relationship with Jesus, okay? And in 25 AD, John the Baptist began to preach, and he attracts this big crowd, and he calls people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, and he is sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And so while he is up in Galilee, he starts speaking out against the sin of Herodias, because it's against Jewish law to leave your husband and marry your husband's brother and elope with him, okay? And so, so John is speaking out against the sin of Herodias and Herod, and Herodias is really upset. She hates him, and she asks her husband to, to kill John the Baptist. But Herod, Antipas, is scared uh, to kill John. He understands that John is incredibly popular with, with the people, and he's afraid of what might happen if he kills John. There could be an uprising. He's not really sure what could happen. So he's like, just to appease his wife, he has John arrested and put into prison. And that's where we're going to pick up our story here in Mark chapter 6, verse 17 to 20. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. And so here we have John the Baptist is in prison. He is, uh, he's the one who's been sent to announce Jesus. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is Jesus' cousin, and he is stuck in Herod's prison. And if we look back at kind of the history of John, back in John 1.29, it's interesting this story is kind of scattered throughout the gospel, so we're trying to kind of put it together here. But John, when Jesus comes, when John is out baptizing in the Jordan River, Jesus comes to be baptized, and John stands up and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John tells his disciples, This is the guy. This is the guy who I have been sent to prepare a way for. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And he, some of his disciples get up and they start following Jesus. And so John, you know, he does everything exactly like he is supposed to do. You know, he prepared the way. He preached repentance. He, he, he proclaimed Jesus. He stood up against the sin of Herod and Herodias. You know, he did everything as well as he knew how to do it. And yet, he's stuck in prison for doing the right thing. And it appears that John is beginning to have some doubts. John seems to be kind of struggling with this situation. And he's looking for some assurance because he feels like he's been forgotten. The scripture seems to point to that he feels like he has been forgotten. You know, and 
when I think about that, I try to go, okay, well, what would I do? What would I do if I was in that situation? You know, I just, you have to feel abandoned. You'd feel alone and depressed. You know, he'd done everything that he was supposed to do, and yet he ends up in prison. You know, it just doesn't seem fair. And so he seems to be having some doubts. And one day some of his disciples come, some of his friends come to minister to him in prison, and he's asked them, he's like, hey, can you guys do me a favor? Can you go ask Jesus a question? And they're like, yep, we can do that. What, what question would you like us to, to ask him? And John says this. He says, ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And I imagine, I'm reading between the lines here, but I imagine that John's disciples may have been surprised by this question because they would have remembered back to the Jordan River and they said, John, remember, you're the one who told us that he was the one. You remember, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You told us he was the one. And yet John, in his prison, seems to be having some doubts. You know, and we all have times in our life when we feel like God has abandoned us. And it can quickly impact our confidence in God. It can change how we see God. We can quickly go from behold the Lamb of God to, and is he the one, or am I waiting for somebody else? And so, Jesus' response to the disciples, when the disciples come back and they ask Jesus that, Jesus says to them, he says, go back and report to John what you see and you hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And so that's Jesus' response. You know, and sometimes we need to be reminded about what God is doing and what God has done. You know, that is the, that, so John is struggling, John is depressed, he's stuck in this prison and he asks, you know, are you the one, or do we seek another? And his disciples come back with the answer, look at everything that I'm doing. The dead are raised. The blind receive their sight. You know, there's amazing stuff happening. And you and I, when we are stuck in a situation that just seems uh, difficult, and we are depressed, and we don't understand why God has left us in this prison, we have to stand up and remember, let's look at everything that God has done, and look at everything that God is doing. You know, in my own life, I've seen this, you know, that I've seen God, he rescued me from just sin and this lifestyle that was just going nowhere, just leading to death. And it was, I was, you know, this partying lifestyle and I was all messed up. But God said, Mark, I forgive you for all that. I want to give you an opportunity to come back to me. I want to give you an opportunity to restore this relationship because I love you and I care about you. And I cannot forget that God did that in my life. And I can't forget that there have been seasons in my life where I have cried out to God and he has come through for me. You know, just to be, just to be real, you know, there have been seasons in my marriage that have been difficult. And there's been times where it's like, man, how are we going to press through this? How are we going to get through this? But God is a God of restoration. God is a God of hope and a God of love. And he has, he has restored us. He has brought us back into, you know, our better, you know, relationship than we've ever had before. 
You know, and God has done stuff in my life. And so when I get into a situation where it's like, oh, I, I'm, I don't understand this situation, how quickly do we forget all that God has done for us in the past? We're, it's so difficult. Just like John had seen Jesus do all this stuff, but he's stuck in this prison and he can't see outside the prison walls. He's just kind of focused in on himself and he's like, I don't understand why I'm here. Maybe this Jesus isn't all he's cracked up to be. But we can stand up and Jesus says, look outside yourself and see what I'm doing and what I have done. And then Jesus also says this. He tells disciples of John, he says, when you go back to John, tell him this. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble, who does not take offense at what I am doing or what I am not doing. Now, Jesus understood where John was at. He understood that it's difficult to reconcile the reality that Jesus is setting captives free out in the world for people that he has never met before, and yet his cousin is still rotting away in jail. And Jesus says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble because of me. So he's saying, tell John to hold on. Tell John to, to, to hang in there because, you know, blessed is anyone who does not stumble. Tell him not to worry. Everything's going to be okay. Okay? Blessed in the, um, in the amplified version means happy. It means, it means uh, to be envied. It means fortunate. And so he's saying, blessed, John, you're blessed. You're happy and you're fortunate in that prison. Just trust me. And throughout the Bible, we see this theme play out. Dana Arledge, one of my professors at Cornerstone, says that the question being asked throughout the story of the Bible is God asking his people, will you trust me? Will you take me at my word? You know, and we see through all the stories of the Old Testament, we see Abraham being forced to trust God when God says, rise up and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And so John packs up, John, Abraham packs up his stuff, takes his family, and he just starts, starts trucking out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he doesn't even know where he's going, but he has to trust that God is going to get him there. And then God says, Abraham, I am going to make you the father of many nations. You know, you're gonna, you're, there's going to be so many of your descendants. It's going to be greater than the stars in the sky. And Abraham had to hold on to this promise for years and years and years with absolutely no tangible proof that this was actually going to happen. He had nothing. He just had to hold on to this promise as he got older and older. Not only wasn't he the father of a great nation, he didn't even have any kids. He had nothing. And so there is a point where he tries to kind of take things into his own hands and tries to make this promise happen, which ends up causing some problems. But eventually, you know, God meets him there, and God fulfills his promise. He gives him the son of promise, Isaac, who is going to, you know, be, you know, be the father of this nation. So he sees the beginning of this promise being fulfilled, and yet for years and years and years and years, he holds on to this with nothing and just trust in God. 
And we see it in Moses' life. Moses, go and set my people free from Egypt. We see it in Joshua's life. Joshua's commanded to go in and take the promised land. And the, the battle plan is to march around a city with some horns and some trumpets, and I'm just going to cause the whole wall to fall down. I, I just think that that would take a lot of faith. You know, he had to trust that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And so the whole story of the Bible asks that question, will you take me at my word? Will you trust me? And in our lives, it may feel like there are circumstances that just don't make sense. You know, we are praying and we're asking God for help, but nothing seems to be changing for us. You know, maybe we need a job, or maybe one of our kids has fallen away from the faith. Maybe our marriage is in trouble. Maybe somebody that we love is sick, and we are crying out to God, but nothing seems to be changing. And God is asking the question, will you trust me? Will you believe that I am going to take care of you? in the midst of this situation? Can you trust that I have not abandoned you and not to allow this circumstance be, to become a stumbling block in your faith? Are you willing to not allow this situation that I agree, I don't understand, but will you allow it to not become an offense between you and between Jesus? Because inside of our circumstance, inside of our prison, it feels like this circumstance has to reveal how God feels about me. But this scripture, this story that we're reading, proves that this just isn't true. It says that John did everything right. John did everything that he was supposed to do. And then Jesus says this about him. He says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Nobody greater. He's the best. You know, and so John is, can't be sitting in there, or his disciples can't be asking, well, maybe John just needs to pray harder. You know, maybe John just needs to, to do some more work. Maybe John's got some sin in his life that he has to deal with. Jesus is saying, nope, nobody's greater than John. He's doing a fantastic job. And yet, he still leaves him in that prison, and that is difficult to understand. You know, in this, and we think that, you know, our current circumstance must reveal how God feels about me. It must reveal how God feels about me because I feel like he's abandoned. But the truth is that proof of how God feels about you is what happened on the cross. That is how we know how Jesus feels about us. Jesus chose to drink the cup that his father gave him, to go to the cross, to shed his blood, to be nailed on that cross and die so that we could be set free from sin and we could be set free from death and so that we could spend eternity with our father. That is how Jesus feels about us. He loves us. He loves us so much that he's willing to die for us. And so, when you are tempted to doubt God's love or his concern for you, we just need to remember to stand up and to look outside of our prison walls and remember what God has done and what God is doing. 
We can remember that Jesus is real. He actually died on the cross. You know, recently in youth group, we went through a series of videos that talked about some, some proofs, some historical proofs, and some archaeological proofs that Jesus existed. And it radically, radically impacted me. Because it gets Jesus out of this kind of storybook character that we kind of read about, and maybe we don't really even understand it. You know, we feel like Jesus is just kind of this force that is supposed to kind of make us happy, and he died for us, and now we're free, and everything's good and right. But the reality is that Jesus is not a storybook character. He is a real man that was really born, that really lived and died on this planet. We have even we have non-biblical sources that talk about Jesus existing. We have this guy named Josephus and this guy named Tacitus who they weren't really pro-Jesus, but they noticed there's a guy out there running around Galilee doing stuff that we cannot explain. And we know that Jesus existed. And we know that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We know that he was murdered by the Roman government. And we know that he was buried in a tomb. And we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that three days later, his body was gone. And nobody can explain it, except that there is a, a resurrection. And we see proof of this resurrection in the way his disciples were radically transformed from these scared little guys hiding in an upper room, and they were transformed into these bold preachers who went out in, this, in the center of Jerusalem proclaiming that Jesus, who you murdered, has risen again. And there's, it's amazing the transformation of what happens to these people after this resurrection. So not only do we remember what Jesus has done for me, what Jesus has done in my life, and how amazing he has been to me, but we can remember, outside of our circumstances, that Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again for each one of us. The, unfortunately, the story doesn't end real well for John. And we're just going to pick up the end of the story here in Matthew 6, 21 to 29. And it says, On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl, the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. You know, that's not maybe the ending that we expect. You know, we, we expect that Jesus comes in and, and sets John free. He brings in the, the disciple SWAT team, and they... They kick down the, the walls and everything works out. But in this situation, 
nothing, you know, nothing changed for John. But he had to make a choice. Jesus told him, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Happy, fortunate, to be envied is anyone who does not stumble, who does not take offense because of what I am doing or what I don't do. John had to make a choice. And we all have to make a choice when we face these situations that we cannot understand, that we can't get our brains around. Are we going to trust God? Are we going to follow him and say, God, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to run after you. Or are we going to fall away and start looking for somebody else? And in James chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so John's reward may have not been on this side of eternity, but we can trust that John received the crown of life. And he is hanging out up there with Jesus right now in, in amazing blessing, in amazing joy, in amazing peace, because he persevered the trial that was put before him. He didn't, he didn't stumble because he's like, hey, look at that guy over there. He got freed from prison. Or look at that guy over there. He got healed from being blind. I'm Jesus's cousin, and I died. You know, it doesn't seem fair, but we all need to make that choice. And the good news is that God is with us through every situation. Just like Sarah said during the word that Emmanuel means God is with us. He is our victory. And our ultimate victory is not on this side of eternity, but our ultimate victory is in heaven with him. And I don't want anybody to, to walk away hopeless and like, oh, I'm going to get my head cut off. This is going to be nothing worked out. Because so many times God comes through with amazing, miraculous power to bring freedom, to bring joy, to bring peace. You know, he sees us through these difficult situations, these difficult seasons in our life. But God is looking for us to make a choice. Do we uh, choose to trust him in that situation, or are we going to fall away? In the story, uh, in the book of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, they stand up to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, we're not going to bow down to your your idol, and Nebuchadnezzar says, if you don't, you're going to be thrown in this fiery furnace. And they said, you can throw us in the furnace, but we believe that God is going to see us through that. But then they say, even if he doesn't, we're still going to put our faith in God. And so regardless of our situation, we can hope and we believe and we trust that God is going to take us through it. He's going to see us through to victory. But even if we don't see it, we choose to not stumble and we choose to not take offense at what Jesus is doing or what he is not doing. So let's pray. Father God, we just thank you that your love is unfailing. We thank you that you are with us in every prison, that you are with us through every situation of life. We choose to trust that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. And we just choose to put our hope in you. 
We choose to put our hope in you. And we believe that you are going to do amazing and miraculous and awesome things for us. We love you. And God, I just pray for any person here today that is struggling with this, that is questioning how you feel about them because of their situation. And God, I just pray that you would meet them in that prison right now, God. I pray that you would reach down your hand right now and that you would touch them, that you would fill them with that hope again, that they could once again learn to trust in you and just live in the blessing that you have promised them regardless of their situation. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Wow. That was awesome. I'm glad you finished that story because I was going, doesn't he know John loses his head over? <laughs> Thanks so much for coming, uh, especially anybody who's new on the backs of the seats. So those in the front seats have to reach around. There's a connection card. Uh, you can use that to connect, sign up for things, put your prayer requests in. There's people just waiting to pray.